Amen. Thanks, Ken. You guys can have a seat. All right. It is so good to see you all here this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there are black hardback Bibles under the seats around you. If you don't own a Bible, uh, feel free to take that with you. That's our free gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. Um, so feel free to take a minute just to turn to Revelation 4. If you want to take notes, the sermon notes are on the seats in front of you. Uh, feel free to snag one of those as well. Um, getting started, if you're visiting with us today or you haven't been here in a while, let me catch you up. So we're in a sermon series going through the book of Revelation. Uh, we have covered three chapters so far, and today we're going to cover two more. And uh, we're going to do our best to finish the week before Christmas. So that's the journey we're on. Um, just a little help on, on kind of the book of Revelation, a lot of different interpretations on time frame and perspectives. Along the way, we're trying to, to bring those to the surface to see why certain people take certain stances on uh, the unfolding of the end times. And we're going we're gonna to lay that out. But we do all this from, from day one with the perspective. The main thing we're after is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the thing that doesn't change. That is our hope. That is the, the place where death dies. That is the place where the resurrection of the dead takes place. And God finally receives the glory do his name from all of creation. And so we're on a journey to get there. Um, along the way, though, we've got uh, some work to do. So some help in Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, we're, we're introduced to the apostle John who's writing down what Jesus tells him to write down. He says, write down these things. And so there's this imagery of Jesus in chapter 1 walking amongst the, the lampstands, the seven lampstands, which rep represent the seven churches. And Jesus is telling John, write down these letters and send them to these seven churches. And so what we saw is that this vivid imagery of Jesus in chapter one helps us understand the content of the letters in chapter two and chapter three. In each of the letters, something from that imagery was pulled forward into those individual letters and sent out. Now, in the same way, we're going to be introduced to a new, a, new, a, new, uh, a new environment, if you will. We're going to be invited into the very throne room of God today in chapters 4 and 5. And the imagery we see here is going to set the stage for Revelation 6 through 20. So for, for the, almost the remainder of the series, we're going to be drawing from the imagery that we see today inside the throne room of God. And so uh, with that being said, I want to get started now. This imagery that John is seeing is so closely connected to former or previous descriptions of the throne room of God, primarily from the Old Testament. So a lot of the imagery in chapter 4 is drawn from Old Testament books like Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1, 4 through 14, 22 through 28. So it's right there in your sermon notes. If you want to go back, we won't have time today, and, and listen or read these beautiful descriptions. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, the first seven verses, we get this rich imagery of the throne room of God. And then uh, also in Daniel uh, chapter 7, 1 through 8. So a lot of this imagery is rooted in the way God revealed his throne room in terms of the Old Testament prophecy. So this isn't brand new. Okay, It's been described this way before, but there is something that is new, and we're going to get into that as we start in verse 1. So verse 1 begins with, after this. After what? So after Jesus has revealed himself in chapter 1, has written down these seven letters, after this... After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now, your translation probably has an exclamation point after the word heaven. That's a big deal. A door standing open in heaven. As soon as that happens, 
You or me in that scenario, we want to look in. We want to see what's going on inside that door that's standing open. So there's a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and, the, and one seated on the throne. So already something, there's something different. In chapter one, Jesus said to John, write down what I tell you. Now he's saying something different. Come write down what I show you. I'm gonna show you something, John. I want you to describe and write down what you see. And it was the same voice we heard in chapter one. Now, so here's where we're gonna be in terms of timeline. Next week, we're gonna bring the timeline back out that we used in the very first sermon. So if you weren't here, you'll get to see it. We're gonna string a timeline across the room and we're gonna put big events on the timeline, starting with creation, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and look at some of the end time um, events that are gonna happen. And we're gonna talk about the different perspectives and we'll use that timeline for the remainder of this series. Now, here's an example of different perspectives. There, so for some folks, when this is taking place in the mid-90s AD, it's when it was happening in real time, John is on the island of Patmos, God is inviting him to come see something and write it down. What's gonna take place in the throne room for some people is taking place right then. It was happening right then, it's a past tense event. Another perspective would be to say what John was seeing was a reflection or an image of what would happen later. So two different perspectives on what we're reading. See how easy it is to get tripped up in, in the little minor details and completely miss the point? So today what we're going to look at is this, this primary thing that is happening and description of what the throne room looks like. As John is invited, no longer just write down what I say, but write down what you see. Come up here. Come up here and I will show you what must take place. Now, I want to point out something here that if, if we're not careful, we'll miss just like we miss in our everyday lives the role of the Holy Spirit. We're gonna see clearly today the role of the Father who created all things. We're gonna see the role of the Son who has redeemed all things. And it might leave us wondering where the Holy Spirit is. Did you see the Holy Spirit? He's already active. But like most of our daily lives, if we're not looking for him, we'll completely miss his work. The Holy Spirit is actually the one ushering John in. Look at verse two. At once I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven. It's the Spirit ushering him just like we read in Ephesians 2, ushering into the very presence of God. Now, what's interesting is if you go back to Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and, and a voice from heaven speaks. And this comes out of um, Matthew 3. Behold, the heavens were open to him. This imagery, the heavens being open. In the very next chapter, the very first verse, Jesus is ushered by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness. And so we see this connection of the Holy Spirit ushering Jesus ushering John, ushering our everyday lives ultimately to this point where we're seeing the majesty of the throne revealed. Now, the idea of the throne is really big for these two chapters. Two chapters of Revelation, 25 verses, 19 times the word throne comes up. So we know that's a primary theme in what's being expressed and described. One of the main things of all, the, we're going to look at all the imagery that John sees, some really cool stuff. But the main thing is the main thing, and it's the throne. All right, so let's go into chapter 3. Keep rolling. And he who sat there 
had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So now John is beginning to describe he who sits on the throne. Now it's the second time that the he on the throne has been mentioned, and neither time has he been given a name, and neither time has he been given an exact description. In the end of chapter two, uh, verse 2, he said, the spirit, uh, at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Just that's all we get described. Now he says, and he who sat there. Now here's what's important. We're getting this incredible, vivid description of the throne room. Yet there is still an unveiling to be had. God isn't fully unveiling himself to us here. And we think about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 when he was writing a letter to the church and he was trying to explain the struggle here on earth. And, he, and Paul says this, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Does it sound familiar? Now, right here in life, as Christians, we see as in a mirror dimly. But then, speaking of the future, face to face. Right now, I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What's the Apostle Paul trying to get at? He's saying right now as believers, we have some sort of imagery of who God is. And it's incredible. It's majestic. It's awesome. It moves us. But it's just a pale comparison to the final revealing when we actually get to see him face to face. And even here, as John describes it, he simply says what? He who's sitting on the throne. Now, now, we're going to get some description of these precious stones trying to depict for us and explain to us what John sees, and he uses this wording. He says, he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, what John is describing, he's using precious stones that are translucent, stones that are able to refract and reflect light, it's almost as though he's literally saying the light bulbs in heaven are these beautiful, rich, precious stones. Like he's saying, guys, the color was amazing. And, and for me, what he's trying to describe is glory. Not, not, not glory with a lowercase g, but glory with a capital G reflecting the very presence of God. The marvelous light of his radiant glory. And the way John describes it, it's like, it's like light refracting through these precious stones, just shooting light everywhere. It's as if the very light bulbs of heaven were these precious stones, jasper, carnelian, and emeralds. It's interesting, we get to the end of Revelation, and the new creation, at the creation of the new heaven and the new earth, there's neither sun nor moon. Why? Because the glory of Jesus is the light. And right here, John's trying to describe for us as best he can what glory looks like. And he who sat on the throne had this appearance. Verse 4, around the throne. Now we're going to see that there are participants and, if you will, characters in the throne room besides just he who sits on the throne. We're first going to be introduced to 24 elders. Verse 4, and around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And so there are three primary interpretations of this passage. Let me just throw them out there for you, and then we'll talk about what matters, okay? Uh, one would be that this reflects mankind in general, that these 24 elders reflect 
mankind in, in general, the fact that they are given crowns and they have thrones, maybe 24 world leaders historically or politically. It's one view on this. Another view is that it's just more symbolic and that it just reflects, um, reflects the idea of God's creation. And on the sixth day, man was created in God's image. So we're going to see a lot of creatures here. And so these are just a set apart uh, part of worship. And it's more symbolic, not reflecting any person. Uh, there were some who would take the view and say, no, these 24 elders actually are real uh, leaders in the church throughout church history. That maybe they would actually have faces and names and different people from different times would recognize these 24. And then there's another view that would say, actually, these 24 elders reflect the church as a whole, just the redeemed. The fact that there's 24, a nice round number. You had the 12 tribes of Israel. You had the 12 apostles. And so 24 then, that these 24 elders reflect uh, the believers in the Old Testament who were saved, the believers in the New Testament who were saved. And the only thing I would add to what we've discussed to help you out is the fact that they are clothed in white garments. And we know already in the book of Revelation, those who are clothed in white garments are in fact the redeemed. Those who have been saved by the blood of Christ. There is no man or woman in human history, much less 24, who could show up in heaven wearing white. It's only the work of Christ that does that. So for me, just the idea that this just represents mankind as a whole, I don't think works, especially when we get to what they're doing. For me, this is more reflective of the whole quite possibly the church or believers throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament coming together. You have 24 elders clothed in white with golden crowns on their head. Love verse five, here we go. Now from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. This is amazing. So he's seeing the throne. He's seeing this radiant, glorious, marvelous light being reflected everywhere. And, and it's almost like explosions of it are just happening. And the only way he can describe it, it was like lightning. And it, I didn't just see it, but I felt it. I felt the, the tremor of the, the rumble of what was taking place. Glory was exploding in such a way I could feel it. I could feel the weight of God's glory. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. If you're just joining us, we spent some time talking about the seven spirits of God in, in earlier on in the series. Even in the Old Testament, God's Holy Spirit being reflected by this phrase, the seven spirits. Not saying that there are seven Holy Spirits, but saying the perfect spirit. Set apart from, from a demon or an angel or any kind of apparition or spirit anywhere, the seven spirits of God is for us then the perfect spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so we have the throne room. We have this majestic view of he who sits on the throne. And we've got the Holy Spirit here ushering John in and represented by the seven, the seven torches of fire. Now we'll get to verse 6. This is cool. And before the throne, this is out front, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Now we got four creatures. Verse 7, the first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, 
and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Now let's stop for just a minute. So trying to get this imagery in our mind, it's, it's a little out there, isn't it? Now, again, here's a few different perspectives on what these creatures represent or reflect. So in any throne room that you go to, even to today, if you see a throne that's been built and created by man, it's going to be very ornate, and it's going to have things carved into the, into the, the armrests and into the backrests, and, and often animals are carved right into the throne reflecting some things about that culture and especially about the character of he who sits on the throne. We, we use animals today. I mean, you see a bald eagle, right, perched up on, uh, and you think of what? It's, you think of patriotism. You think about being honor and being proud to be an American. And so for, for, for ages, as human beings, we've used animals, especially in throne room scenes, to depict the character of he who sits on the throne. So, for example, you see a lion, you might think strength, you see an eagle, you might think honor. You see an image of a man, you might think wisdom. You see the ox, you might, you might think about uh, whatever, youthfulness. Or, and so these, the one perspective is that these creatures, these four living creatures then, simply reflect the character of he who sits on the throne. Instead of having them carved into the throne, they're alive. This king, his images are alive. Living creatures. That's pretty cool, huh? Well, another perspective on this would be to say that actually these living creatures reflect creation itself. The lion reflecting carnivores, meat eaters, the ox, herbivores, the grass eaters, the eagle, the birds of the air, and man reflecting mankind. And so you have then creation itself depicted in the throne room here of God. One third view would be uh, the imagery from both from Ezekiel, which has angels in the throne room, and then in Isaiah 6, um, has the seraphim, that maybe these are just, just the way seraphim look. You just, just have a hard time describing them, and they, this is the way they look. And so, but, but again, here's, here's the point. Not so much, right, that we know exactly what they depict or reflect. It's what they're doing. It's what they're doing. Verse 8, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within and day and night, they never cease to say. Now, every time we come across the word say, you can also think proclaim or sing or announce. This is what they're announcing and proclaiming. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So whether you're looking at these, these, uh, these animals as symbolism of God's character, or you're looking at them as just symbolisms of creation itself, right? So it doesn't matter right now. God is exalted, and, and these creatures are enthralled in worship of him. And, and look at the content of their worship. Holy, 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 three holies. One holy means set apart and perfect, right? Three holies can only be ascribed to God. He's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, his eternal character. So these creatures are enthralled of, in worship of God simply for who he is. They're not mentioning anything that he's done. They're just seeing his nature. He's holy, he's eternal, and these creatures are enthralled in worship. Now, all throughout, I love the Psalms and the call to worship in Psalms. And if you go and you read the Psalms, you're going to see that 
among creation, we aren't the only ones who actually worship. You're going to see that every piece of creation, every molecule in the created universe is involved in worship. Psalm 96 is a good example. Psalm 96 says, this is the first three verses, this call to worship. Psalm 96, verse 1, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Now, this sounds like a call to people right now, right? It's beautiful. I love it. I oftentimes will hear um, from, from, from a group of um, macho people within the church, um, you know what, I'm just not into music. Singing's not just not my thing. I, you know, I'll, I'll sit through the singing till we get to the preaching. The preaching's my thing. But I'm just not interested. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't sing. Now, on one hand, I've, I've heard you, and, and I agree. You're not a very good singer. But that's not the point of worship. It's not. Did you, did you hear the point of worship from Psalm 96? Like, let me read it again. Here's the point of worship. Tell of his, we've been commanded to sing three times. And then verse three says, or verse two says, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works. I don't care how good you sing or whether or not you like music. We have been called as his people to declare him, to declare his salvation and his glorious works among the nations. Not just the sopranos and the tenors. Every person who has been created by God is called to stand and to sing and declare his glory. But then I want you to look at the end of Psalm 96, starting in verse 11. Look at this. Let the heavens be glad. Now what we're going to see is creation is going to be personified here, and creation itself is going to be called to worship, beginning with the heavens. Let the heavens be glad. And let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his Faithfulness. Now, here's the deal. I don't care if you're into music, and I don't care if you like to sing. I don't, you may be a lousy singer, but you sing better than the trees. And they're singing. Right? What, what, the, what the mountains are aching to be able to declare, you have the words in the mouth to do it. Creation itself is being called to exalt the Lord and declare his goodness and and they don't even have mouths, right? Creation itself is just, Romans 8, just groaning and longing to do what you and I have been created and, 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 and equipped to do, to exalt the Lord and declare his goodness. If you're taking notes, in the majestic presence of he who sits on the throne, creation worships God for who he is. Creation worships God for who he is. This is what Paul says in Romans 1, that creation itself is declaring the character and the nature of God. And so here in the throne room, this beautiful depiction, right, 
of creation, just exalting and praising God for who he is. Verse 9. Now, this is cool. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him. So when they erupt in worship, look what happens. To him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Verse 10 says, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I love this. So for me, these 24 elders don't just represent mankind. These guys are involved in worship. And I love what's taking place here. For all the glory that they earned here on earth, whether these are 24 actual leaders within God's kingdom, men who've walked on the face of the earth, or they're just representative of the church as a whole. For everything we have attained and acquired and put together and built on our own, every bit of it, every bit of what we do here as a church that is in the name of solid rock and not Jesus, guess what? We're going to lay it all down. Every bit of it. Everything that we, every piece of glory we have attained is going to be laid down in submission to him. Now, hopefully we're doing that day by day, moment by moment right now, right? But anything that's left, anything we try to take with us into God's presence, right, that would boast of, of our own glory, we will lay it down in the majestic presence of he who sits on the throne. And did you notice what they were worshiping him for? What he has done. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. We got, the, we got creation worshiping God for who he is, his, his character. We've got the elders bowing down and worshiping him for what he has done. He has created and he sustains all things according to the purpose of his will. Now, here's what's happening, okay? You're going to begin to feel a crescendo building, right? I mean, this is just the opening verse. We haven't even got to the chorus yet. So, Creation's worshiping, and it says as soon as creation erupts in worship, the elders just kind of, they bow down, they lay their crowns down, their hearts erupt in worship. Look at what happens next. So after the elders worship him for what he has done, verse, five, uh, verse 1 in chapter 5. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now, we've already learned this from Revelation, the right hand reflecting the hand of authority. This is where uh, we see that the seven churches are within the hand of Jesus in chapter 1. And so now, in the right hand of him who's seated on the throne, presumably God the Father, now we've got a scroll, and it's written within and on the back, so it's double-sided, and sealed with seven seals. Now, we're going to come back um, next week with the timeline, and we're going to see these seven seals opened up. It's going to be really cool. Um, but for right now, let's just talk about what's taking place. So this is a really common um, imagery for John in this time. So scrolls oftentimes are written on both sides in this particular time and sealed, but sealed not just with one signet ring stamp, with seven. Now, practically, this makes sense. So you're a person in authority, you're a king, you write down your edict or your law or your commands, you seal it, 
This is similar to what King David did when he had Bathsheba's husband killed. He wrote down the command, sealed it, and sent it with him into battle. This is pretty common. But so pragmatically with seven seals, it makes it hard to come open on accident, right? So this protects the courier. I tripped and fell and it came open. No, you didn't. You broke seven seals, right? But symbolically, this, this reflects the authority of what's written in it. The seven seals reflecting what is inside this scroll and written down is both complete and perfect. It stands in complete authority. And so now we have one who is seated on the throne with this scroll in his hand. It's sealed with seven seals. Now, the problem we're going to see is that we've got to find somebody who has equal authority who can open it. Nobody else is going to be fit. Verse 2. So John's writing in the first person. He said, and I saw. So I've got this imagery, four creatures, throne, radiant glory, like just credible emeralds and lights going off all around. I saw lightning, peals of thunder. When the creatures worshiped, the elders would bow down. But then I heard another voice. It says in verse 2, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Now there's an angel there in the throne room. And he asked the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. There was nobody found of equal authority. The elders were not qualified to open it. The four living creatures, whatever perspective you have, none were worthy to open it. The angel himself is saying what? I can't open it. I'm not worthy to open that scroll. And then look at what John does in verse 4. I began to weep loudly. And we're going to see that he's weeping so loudly that either his eyes are full of tears, that he can't see what's going on, or his head drops. But one of the elders has to call him to pick up his eyes and see what's going on. Look at what happens. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. John, quit crying. Weep no more. Behold, look. Look at what we see. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He's conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, this is incredible. So, Keep in mind, the Holy Spirit is ushering John into this. He's illuminating all this for John. God the Father, we got elders, we got creatures enthralled in worship. Worship of the Father always leads to worship of the Son. The Son is depicted here with equal authority. The only creature, the only being, the only one worthy to open these seals is one like God the Father himself. The angel said, I can't do it. John begins to weep, and one of the elders said, John, quit crying. Look, I see one who's worthy. He's the, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. He's the one who conquered. He's the one who conquered, and he can open it. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders... I saw a lamb standing, which doesn't sound very unique until we read the next phrase, as though it had been slain. Now, this is really probably hard to wrap our minds around it. 
Jesus as the conqueror of death still reflects at this moment a lamb. He still reflected as a lamb who was slain. Now think about it for a minute. I love how Ephesians 2 describes this moment for me. If you're reading Ephesians 2, the first 10 verses, you're going to come across a verse that talks about glory yet to be revealed, a future glory, talking about our salvation. For me, this is a depiction of that moment. Let me explain it to you. Because, see, we're going we're gonna to learn over the course of Revelation that we are the saints. We're the redeemed. We're the ones wearing white garments. And in every depiction of that in heaven, guess what happens? There's a sense of, oh, my gosh, I'm not worthy to be here. Right? There's a sense of, I don't deserve to be here. But in that same breath, what happens? The mercy of Jesus meets us and says, you're right, but I've covered you. Come on in. And so when I see you there, I'm going to worship Jesus even more. And when I see you, I'm going to be reminded of his sacrifice, that he laid his life down to get you in, right? And, and, and myself included, I'm going to be there and I'm going to be thinking, gosh, I don't deserve to be here. And you're going to look at me and you're going to remind me. That's right. That's why we needed a lamb who was slain. And so the elder calls John's attention to see the lamb standing as though he had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Verse 7. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Here's what's happening. First it was the creatures got the first verse. And then what happened when they sang? Then the elders would start singing, and now they're actually joining together to sing. And, and look at what else happens. They were each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. And as they opened these bowls and the incense, the aroma came out. Look at what happened. These are the prayers of the saints. Gosh, let me describe this for you for just a minute. This is telling me, along with a lot of other scripture, that my prayers before God have less to do with him doing what I asked and more to do with whom I'm proclaiming him to be. So when I go before God and I say, please help here, do this, it's less about whether or not he does what I want and more about who I'm proclaiming him to be. What am I saying? You're able. I'm coming to you because you're the only one who can fix this. Now, whether he does or not, as Jesus prayed, nonetheless, not my will, your will be done, it's up to him. And so it's less about him doing and more about me proclaiming what? He can. It's just who he is. He's able to do that which I cannot. And here the bowls are open and the prayers of the saints begin to, begin to fill the room and join in. I'm kinda, it's kind of picturing that Bruce Almighty moment. I know it's a horrible reference. <laughs> With all the yellow stickies and all of a sudden all these voices are going off and he's overwhelmed by all the prayers of all the saints going off at one time. But for me, this is a beautiful depiction of worship. All the prayers that you have prayed and I have prayed have been stored up. And, and whether God answered them the way we wanted him to or not is irrelevant at this moment. All the proclamations of who he is begins to fill the air. You're the God who heals marriages. You're the God who breaks addictions. You're the God who saves souls. You're the God who forgives sins. You're the God who can. 
begins to ring out like an ambient background noise to the worship taking place. Isn't that incredible? And here's what we're singing now with creation. We've hit a new verse here. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. I love this. I know we don't have time. I have to ask for permission from my wife. Can I use Calvin's story about resurrection real quick? Would that be okay? Yeah, she said yes. Okay. So, like, we, for us, like, for our, our, our children to grow up completely colorblind, that's our goal. We believe that's a beautiful reflection of the kingdom of God. Every tribe, every language, every nation. You know where I'm going now, don't you? And so, We've been in this Revelation series for a couple months, and our boys have been talking about it, and our oldest son was telling our younger son, who's four, about resurrection of the body, okay? And so I love this. And so Calvin, our four-year-old, uh, they're talking in the back seat about, you know, Jesus is going to beat up Satan, and we're going to get new bodies. And then Calvin's like, Daddy, is that right? We're going to get another, we get two bodies? I get another one? And I said, yeah, for all who believe in Jesus, we get a resurrected body. He said, can, can mine be dark brown like my friend Isaiah at school? Yes, right? I just want to say, absolutely. If for no other reason, right, that maybe he gets it, that we're not defined by the color of our skin. That's depicted here. This beautiful collection of God's people coming together, shapes and sizes and colors, and, and who stinking cares, right? I mean, what a beautiful motivation for racial reconciliation right here, right? Before the throne of God. God's people gather from every tribe, every language, every nation. I don't know. I mean, I didn't want to correct him. Who cares? The fact is that he realized that heaven's not just for white people. Amen. I'll high-five that all day long. Now do I have permission to say that? Thank you. All right. There's something really incredible, though, I want us to get out of this, okay? Creation and mankind the redeemed are joining in worship. Um, you know, this isn't the only place that talks about that in the Bible. Romans 8 talks about that's happening right now. I've used this reference a couple times in the series. In Romans 8, Paul's describing this, and in verse 19 of Romans 8, he says that right now creation is waiting with eager longing. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. I want to point out one thing. What in the world would get the rocks excited about my redemption? Think about it. Why do the trees care about me getting a resurrected body? Because that's what Romans 8 is going to go on to say. I'll just read some of it. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. You know what? Creation suffers from the fall, and, and the trees didn't sin. We did. You realize that? Creation itself is under the weight and the impact of the fall of sin, and the mountains didn't do anything. Right? Just watching Adam and Eve right there going, don't, don't do it. Oh, you did it. And now creation itself is under that weight of a fallen world. Not willingly, but by him who subjected it. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What? Creation itself is longing for the freedom that you and I have in Christ. 
to be set free. There is no Garden of Eden right now on earth. If you find a spot on earth that looks like the Garden of Eden, give it time. It'll get flooded or it'll go into drought or it'll catch on fire or a tornado will hit it or a hurricane. Why? Because creation itself is subject to the fall. Creation is longing for the return of Jesus that all things will be made new. All things. Resurrected bodies for you and I and a new heaven and a new earth. In the majestic presence of God, creation and the elders of the church join together to worship him for his redemption. I just don't care how good you can sing. I don't. We've been called to stand with one voice and proclaim his salvation. And when we won't do it, the rocks will stink and cry out. This is happening right now. Anytime you step out into creation, whether you're under a starlit sky or you're just standing on a, map and a mountain staring down at a valley, or a king, anytime you're overwhelmed with, with something about creation, you're experiencing the majesty of creation itself exalting God. Saying, isn't this wonderful? What? Saying, isn't he wonderful? And it's happening right now. Verse 11. This is good. This is the course. It's the crescendo. It's almost like, here's, here it is. It's almost like there's a, there's, a, there's a conductor, right? You know how like orchestra starts and it begins to call the different pieces into, into making music? First, it's the creatures, and second, it's the elders, and he calls them in to their, do their part. And then, hey, let's unleash the prayers of the saints. And you begin to feel this thing building. The difference is, though, like there's no conductor. It's the presence of God conducting all this. And look at the crescendo with me in verse 11. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne. So he's no longer just describing what he sees. He's describing what he heard. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, because we already heard them singing, and look at this, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Are you kidding? That's incredible. We saw a brief shot of this when, at the birth of Jesus, right? The proclamation of the birth of Jesus, and there's this anthem of angels singing, and then what? Then it goes silent. And so what's happening now is creation is singing out, right? The church is singing out and the angels are singing out in numbers. That's, the only way he can describe it, it sounded like thousands upon thousands of angels were singing. And they were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders bowed down and worshiped. Now, this is just one way that I might help us understand the significance of what we read today. All of life here on earth in the fallen world is a tension between where we are and where we need to be. Okay, I'm going to give you some examples. I'll use a, an infant, baby, for example. 
show me an eight-year-old or eight-month-old or nine-month-old little baby, and, and what I'm going to see is this little head bobbing, right, blob of skin and flesh. But by this age, this little child has begun to see around him bigger versions of him or herself that are able to walk. And, and what's going to happen? He's going to begin to what? Or she's going to begin to want to walk too. But it's going to seem completely impossible, isn't it? Like, you know, when you stand them up, what do they do? They fall back over, right? And they try to straighten their head up and they're like this and, then, and they fall back over, right? Why? Because they can't do it. And so there's this tension between where they are and where they want to be. Now, take that as a metaphor then and apply it to the rest of life. Every person in this room is living in the tension between where you are right now and where your heart is longing to be. And, and it may be something practical right now. It might be I'm unemployed and I want to be employed and it seems impossible. It might mean my marriage is a wreck and I don't know how in the world it would ever be fixed, but I want it to be fixed. I see people around me with marriages that seem to be fixed and I don't know how to get there, but there's a tension, right? Between where you are and where you need to be. Some people in this room are walking in deep bondage and addiction. And you see brothers and sisters around you, you even heard testimonies of people who've been set free from addictions. There's a tension between where you are and where you wanna be, right? There's this tension here. So for me, when I, when I see this amazing imagery of what will be, I feel a tension. I feel a tension in my heart, right? When I, when, I, when I operate throughout the week, Monday through Saturday, right, apart from this moment, there's a competition for who sits on the throne in my heart. There is. And there's a tension between what's going on right now and this moment. I love what Paul says. We read from Romans 8 earlier. He begins that section by saying, I don't consider the sufferings of this present life worth comparing. And what he's not saying is that what you're going through right now isn't hard or painful, but what he's saying is what you're going through right now is so stinking small. And he had all the authority to say that, by the way. Right? Run out of town, stone. They tried to kill him a lot of times, shipwreck. Like when he was having a bad day, is a bad day. And he's saying, but here's the thing. My bad day is just a little bit, little bitty compared to this the glory that is to be revealed. Paul's saying, when I'm, when I'm sitting before the throne, you remember what Paul said when he was in prison? If I live, live for Christ. If I die, right, it's game. I don't care. God's in control whether I live or I die. How do you say that without being out of your mind? Here's how you say it, because Paul's saying, there's a better scene coming. My life's just the intro to the story. There's a better scene coming. And it is so magnificent that what happens in my life today, right, is pale in comparison. And so there's a tension between where we are right now and where we will be one day. And, and guys, here's the thing. Church, when we gather together on Sunday mornings, what we're doing is we're, we're just creating a snapshot of this. Do you know that? We're not singing because this just happens to be a musically gifted church. We're singing because we were commanded to declare his salvation and declare his glory among the nations. So when we walk in here on Sunday mornings, we're just getting warmed up. Right? This is, the, this is just a small version of what will be. And we need to do it weekly. Right? Because we go out and we live in a world and it's confusing about who sits on the throne. Right? Some tension here. Does my boss sit on the throne? Because I feel like it. Is my wife sitting on the throne right now? Because I kind of feel like it. My husband's sitting on the throne. Right? And in this moment, we come together as a saint and we remind each other there's only one who's worthy to sit on the throne. And we declare his salvation, his glory among the nations together. Sunday mornings are supposed to be a small snapshot of this moment. 
We'll end with Psalm 96. Psalm 96 says this, shout for, for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you, and they sing praises to your name. The last statement in your notes, in the majestic presence of he who sits on the throne, all of creation, along with the church and the angels, will gather together with one voice to worship God. So you, you probably hear that phrase around here a lot. It's part of our mission statement. We've been called to make disciples for Jesus through gathering and worship. That's not just a cliche. That's living out what we're called to do eternally. To gather together in worship, to grow together in community, and live the mission in our everyday lives. And in the presence of he who sits on the throne, creation, the church, the prayers of the saints, and all the angels will gather together and to declare with one voice his majesty. What I want to do now is I'm going to invite Jason Martin to come back up, our music minister, and just maybe play a little bit behind us. We're going to take communion together. And um, if you're here with us visiting, we invite you to take communion with us if you'd like. Um, the way we do it here, you'll see in just a minute, um, we're going to have some of our life group leaders at specific places in the room with the elements of communion. And I'll let you know when. There'll be a time for you to go ahead and come down and pick up the elements of communion and, and head back to your seat. And then we'll take communion together as one church. And so we're going to do that in a minute. Um, but before we do, I want to take just a moment to have a time of reflection. So as Jason gets ready to play, if we could just pray together right now. And maybe you take a moment just to close your eyes and, and to, to maybe quiet your soul. Think about how God has spoken to you today. I have, I have no idea how you've been challenged or encouraged today, but I believe God has spoken to each one of us. Maybe right now for you, it's recognizing that the way you live your life, the way you worship, Maybe your view of God, God has just been too small. Maybe you've been seeing God as a God who's worthy of once a week worship, a God who's a come and go God. Maybe today you're seeing, even though we can't fully see his glory, maybe today you're seeing a bigger view of God than you have ever imagined. Today, if you don't have a relationship with him, I'm gonna pray for you that you would make that decision today. And as I pray, our, our prayer partners are going to move to the back of the room. They're here to talk with you and pray with you about making that decision. I'm going to pray now that you would respond to God's spirit as he speaks to you. Father, thank you. Thank you for reminding us of how majestic your glory is. Thank you for reminding us of how sweet your redemption is. God, thank you for reminding us that our worship falls immeasurably short of what you deserve. Now we pray for any person here, God, today who doesn't know you, that today would be the day we come to you through the sacrifice of Jesus, 
trusting you and you alone for salvation and redemption and healing and hope and joy. God, we pray that you would do what only you can do.